welcome back our fellow patriots to the Patriot Lessons American History and Civics Podcast. We renew the spirit of America by learning about what makes America the greatest nation in world history, including our founding first principles, the key documents and speeches which embody them, founding fathers and other great patriots, which made those principles come to life, as well as flags and other key symbols of America. This podcast is produced by Patriot Week. Please visit Patriot Week's website at patriotweek.org. We have a wide range of great resources, including founding documents, links to prior episodes, over 130 TV shows, lesson plans, and other patriotic resources. I am Oakland County Circuit Court Judge Michael Warren, and I'm a former executive director of the New Common School Foundation. I am joined by the fantastic duo of special patriot narrators, Mike Gerard Skanechny, who is the host of his own wonderful podcast, Be Reasonable, with Mike Gerard, and bombastic Brent Bassett, attorney and dungeon master supreme. Today, we continue our in-depth review of the Declaration of Independence. We absolutely need to do this to preserve our liberties. If we don't understand the Declaration and what makes us a nation, we are doomed to lose our freedoms. If you missed our prior episodes, you might want to go back and catch up to where we are now. But if not, please join us right here and right now. When we return, we examine the following key passages from the Declaration of Independence. Quote, the history of the present King of Great Britain is a history of repeated injuries and usurpations, all having in direct object the establishment of an absolute tyranny over these states. To prove this, let facts be submitted to a candid world. He has refused his assent to laws, the most wholesome and necessary for the public good. He has forbidden his governors to pass laws of immediate and pressing importance, unless suspended in their operation till his assent shall be obtained, and when so suspended, he has utterly neglected to attend to them. Welcome back, my fellow patriots. Broadly speaking, the Declaration of Independence can be divided into three major parts. First, there is a Declaration of Founding First Principles for a just and free government and society. Second, there is a list of injuries and usurpations, usually called grievances, against the British Empire for violating those founding first principles in the American colonies. And third, there is a conclusion explaining that the former British colonies in North America are becoming the independent nation of the United States of America. The first part of the Declaration of Independence is well known. It is composed of the first two paragraphs of the Declaration. The first paragraph is a magnificent poetic passage that begins with, when in the course of human events. This paragraph is an introduction to the Declaration and lays out some of the underlying assumptions of the founders. We covered this in episodes four and five. The second paragraph is earth shattering. It begins with, we hold these truths to be self-evident. These paragraphs describe what we have termed our founding first principles and related bedrock concepts. We address these in episodes 7, 8, 9, 12, 13, 16, 18, 19, 20, 21, and 23. The next most famous passages are actually from the third part of the Declaration, that is the last two paragraphs of the document, which also wax quite poetically and evoke serious emotion. Just before them are a couple of short transitional paragraphs explaining how the founders had appealed to the people of Britain 
alas, to no avail. These last several paragraphs together are the closing argument about why independence is necessary and how the new nation will proceed in war and peace. This third part of the Declaration will be addressed in future episodes. But in between the first two paragraphs and the last few paragraphs is the second portion of the Declaration. It is mostly a long list of actions by the British Empire that the founders explained justified and required as a duty the revolution. This list of grievances tends to get short shrift. If not skipped, completely omitted, and ignored in most history and political science books and lessons. Well, this is a huge mistake. As glorious as the beginning and the end of the Declaration are, they make no sense without the middle. The Declaration was not just a philosophical statement. It was not an idealist pamphlet. It was not a theory. It was a political, legal, and cultural document explaining why the colonies had passed a resolution for independency two days before. The first part of the Declaration is approximately 275 words. The third part is about 265 words. The second part? About 770 words. So the grievances and its combined short introduction is more than the rest of the document combined. Last regular episode, we discussed how revolution is justified when a government engages in a long train of abuses and usurpations that invariably shows a plan to oppress the unalienable rights of the people and to impose an absolute despotism over the people. Before we can get to the specific grievances in the second part, there is a short introduction to the list of grievances, which potently explains that the preconditions for a revolution in America have been met. Here it is. Quote, The history of the present king of Great Britain is a history of repeated injuries and usurpations, all having in direct object the establishment of an absolute tyranny over these states. Unquote. This sentence takes the next step by explaining that this is exactly what happened to the colonists. This sentence moves from theory into reality. It declares that the history of the reigning king of the British Empire proves that he had indeed engaged in that long train of abuses and usurpations. Note that the language shifts from the absolute despotism to tyranny. For the Americans, there was no practical difference between those terms. They were both absolute, and they both mean that the government is crushing the unalienable rights of the people, violating the social compact, subverting equality, undermining the rule of law, and is unlimited, all in violation of the founding first principles. Over time, there has been no shortage of absolute tyrannies, and in several prior episodes, we have explored a variety of them. Ancient Egypt and the Pharaoh, unchecked kings, the Soviet Union, Communist China, Cambodia, and North Korea, among others. And don't forget the absolute tyrannies from the people in ancient Greece and the French Revolution. Ah, uh, not so fast, Judge. There is one other aspect of that sentence that deserves a bit of elaboration. And to the modern ear, we probably gloss right over it. The sentence refers to the king. Now, you might be thinking, well, of course the colonists are going to refer to the king. Thanks, Mike Gerard. I was about to get to that, but, you know, go ahead, take over the episode. Don't say I never did you any favors. Well, I'm not sure who's doing who a favor here, but in any event, we will soon discover as we begin our review of the grievances that British oppression against the colonists is usually considered to have started in the 1760s, and the colonists for years laid blame for the troubles at the feet of the parliament or the king's misguided and wicked ministers, but hardly ever at the feet of the king himself. 
Most who resisted British policies believed that the king was not at fault. They thought his corrupt, stupid, or devious ministers were behind the trouble. Somewhat like our president today, there was a group of officials who dictated policy for the empire. Those officials were in several groupings, including a privy council, the cabinet, the admiralty board, the board of trade, leaders of the parliament, and of course, generals and admirals. Privy Council members were appointed by the king and served for life. The cabinet was actually more directly involved in making policy. Members of the cabinet included the first minister, otherwise known as the prime minister. Then there was the secretary at war, three secretaries of state, including one dedicated to the colonies, the home secretary. That's kind of a combination of the attorney general, immigration czar, and director of homeland security, and there was the chancellor of the exchequer, and that was the person in charge of the treasury and finance. The colonists thought if only the king could see through the tyrannical policies of the prime minister and the others, that all would be right in the world. And the prime minister at the time was Lord North. <clears throat> Lord North was technically the Right Honorable Frederick North, 2nd Earl of Guilford, KGPC. That's quite the mouthful, and he served as Prime Minister from 1770 to 1782. That's right, Bombastic Brent. And we thought Bombastic Brent Bassett was pretentious. Now, before Lord North, there was a series of short-tenured ministers. From 1760, when King George III took power, until Lord North took office in 1770, the prime ministers included Thomas Pelham Holes, John Stuart, George Grenville, Charles Watson Wentworth, William Pitt the Elder, and Augustus Fitzroy. The king. We know we all love the king. Well, since my baby left me, will I find a new place to dwell? Well, it's down at the end of Lonely Street, that heartbreak hotel where I'll be. I'll be just a lonely baby. Well, I'm so lonely. I'll be just a lonely. I could die. No, not Elvis. I better take over. The king at the time of the revolution was King George III. He reigned from 1760 to 1820. That 60-year reign was one of the longest in British history. You might be surprised, but George III was the descendant of Germans and actually was the prince-elector of Hanover in the Holy Roman Empire and became king of Hanover in 1814. His grandfather, King George I, was born in Hanover. It is a long story, but George I's second cousin was Anne, Queen of Great Britain, and when George I outlived both his mother and Anne, George I became the King of Great Britain. He was the deceased Queen's closest living Protestant relative. When George I died, his son, also born and raised in Hanover, became King of Great Britain. He pretty much let the Parliament and his ministers control public policy. He was focused on his German properties. Unfortunately for him, his son died before he did. When George II died in 1760, his grandson became King George III and took the throne. Unlike his grandfather, King George III was thoroughly British and dedicated himself to serving the British Empire and making England the key focus of his reign as opposed to Hanover. One of the reforms he implemented was to elevate what we would call the Prime Minister. The colonists originally focused their ire against British policies on the ministry and parliament. 
After all, many of the problematic issues with England was Parliament's infringement of the rights of the colonists to govern themselves. As just but one example, the colonists argued that Parliament could not impose a tax on the colonists because only the elected legislatures in the colonies had such authority. The king was not the problem, it was the Parliament, led by or in league with British ministers. The colonists were trying to beat back Parliament. They did not want to break away from the king. But that attitude slowly changed. Year after year, the colonists' concerns were being rebuffed by the entire British government, including the king. Colonists started to point to the king as the source of their misery. And the colonists were right. As the years passed, the British became more oppressive and the king became more entrenched in his position. Soon, he would be solid stone, unwilling to bend. The king was the focus. We had to get the Beatles in here somehow for Mike Gerard's sake. Ugh, what a boring little song. And the Sun King? That's Louis XIV, Le Roy Soleil. Did you know they made a musical about him a couple years ago? Oh, don't ruin our flow. But yes, George III was no Sun King. In fact, he would become a king of storms. As early as September 11th, 1774, George III declared, quote, The die is now cast. The colonies must either submit or triumph, unquote. A couple of months later, he wrote to Lord North that, quote, The New England governments are in a state of rebellion. Blows must decide whether they are to be subject to this country or independent, unquote. A few months later, in February 1775, Lord North made an address to the House of Commons declaring that New England was in rebellion and the king should subdue it. The House approved the address by a two-to-one margin. As colonial resistance stiffened and spread throughout the colonies, on February 15, 1775, King George III wrote to Lord North, quote, Once vigorous measures appear to be the only means left of bringing the Americans to a due submission to the mother country, the colonies will submit, unquote. On June 5, 1775, he wrote another letter to Lord Dartmouth, declaring that, quote, America must be a colony of England or treated as an enemy, unquote. The king had decided that to quell the colony's resistance would require force. Remember, this was before the bloody battle at Bunker Hill, really fought mostly at Breed's Hill, on June 17, 1775. The king seemed to have already made up his mind to force a military solution on the colonists. Even when the colonists revealed their steely resolve to fight for their unalienable rights, when a major battle erupted at Bunker Hill, in which the British suffered appalling losses in a technical victory, the king was not going to back down. The consequences be damned. The king believed he had a duty to crush the colonies. On the other side of the ocean, the colonists were seeking peace. After a robust debate, the Congress approved an olive branch petition addressed to the king. It was primarily drafted by John Dickinson, and Dickinson had a long history of opposing British oppression, but he desperately wanted to have the colonies remain part of the empire. Eventually, he actually refused to sign the Declaration of Independence, but at this point, he was still working within Congress to aggressively oppose British oppression. Dickinson's draft 
popularly known as the Olive Branch Petition, was approved and signed by 48 members of Congress on July 5, 1775. The petition began by acknowledging the origin of the colonies, their long-standing governance as part of the empire, and the desire to maintain loyalty to the empire. It pointed out that the colonists believed that they had been wronged over the course of many years. In accordance with the old understanding, the petition laid blame for the disputes between the colonies and the mother country at the feet of the king's ministers. It then provided the colonies desired peace. Knowing to what violent resentments and incurable animosities civil discords are apt to exasperate and inflame the contending parties, we think ourselves required by indispensable obligations to Almighty God, to your majesty, to our fellow subjects, and to ourselves, immediately to use all the means in our power, not incompatible with our safety, for stopping the further effusion of blood, and for averting the impending calamities that threaten the British Empire. The petition then acknowledged the illustrious position of the king, and prayed that he would look upon the petition and the concerns of the colonies with an open mind and in good faith. We are earnestly desirous of performing this office with the utmost deference for your majesty, and we therefore pray that your royal magnanimity and benevolence may make the most favorable construction of our expressions on so uncommon an occasion. Could we represent in their full force the sentiments that agitate the minds of us, your dutiful subjects? We are persuaded your majesty would ascribe any seeming deviation from reverence, and our language, and even in our conduct, not to any reprehensible intention, but to the impossibility of reconciling the usual appearances of respect with a just attention to our own preservation against those artful and cruel enemies who abuse your royal confidence and authority for the purpose of effecting our destruction. The petition then asked, even begged, that the king work with the colonies to find a peaceful resolution of the dispute that divided them. They reassured them of their desire to be loyal and to work with the king to bring peace to the empire. We solemnly assure your majesty that we not only most ardently desire the former harmony between her and these colonies may be restored, but that a concord may be established between them upon so firm a basis as to perpetuate its blessings uninterrupted by any future dissensions to succeeding generations in both countries, and to transmit your majesty's name to posterity adorned with that signal and lasting glory that has attended the memory of these illustrious personages, whose virtues and abilities have extricated states from dangerous convulsions, and by securing happiness to others, have erected the most noble and durable monuments to their own fame. We beg leave further to assure your majesty that notwithstanding the sufferings of your loyal colonists during the course of the present controversy, our breasts retain too tender a regard for the kingdom from which we derive our origin to request such a reconciliation as might in any manner be inconsistent with her dignity or her welfare. Your majesty will find your faithful subjects on this continent ready and willing at all times, as they ever have been, with their lives and fortunes, to assert and maintain the rights and interests of your majesty and of our mother country. We therefore beseech your majesty 
that your royal authority and influence may be graciously interposed to procure us relief from our afflicting fears and jealousies occasioned by the system before mentioned, and to settle peace through every part of your dominions, with all humility submitting to your majesty's wise consideration, whether it may not be expedient for facilitating these important purposes, that your majesty be pleased to direct some mode by which the united applications of your faithful colonists to the throne, in pursuance of their common counsels, may be improved into a happy and permanent reconciliation, and that in the meantime measures be taken for preventing the further destruction of the lives of your majesty's subjects, and that such statutes as more immediately distress any of your majesty's colonies be repealed, that your majesty may enjoy a long and prosperous reign, and that your descendants may govern your dominions with honor to themselves and happiness to their subjects, is our sincere and fervent prayer. Here it was, a petition that recognized the traditional ties of the colonies, professed the colonies' desire to remain loyal, laid blame on the king's ministers, not him, asked the king to look favorably on the colonies, and begged him to personally intervene to garner peace with the empire. Despite this desire to sue for peace, the Congress determined to justify violence to defend the unalienable rights of the people. The very next day, after approving the Olive Branch Petition, the Second Continental Congress approved military action in defense of the unalienable rights of the colonists in its Declaration of the Causes and Necessity of Taking Up Arms. The Declaration, half written by Dickinson and half by Thomas Jefferson, proclaimed that Parliament, having attempted to effect their cruel and impolitic purpose of enslaving these colonies by violence, rendered it necessary for us to close with their last appeal from reason to arms. The Declaration of the Causes and Necessity explained that Americans were unwilling to be enslaved without a fight. We have counted the cost of this contest and find nothing so dreadful as voluntary slavery. Honor, justice, and humanity forbid us tamely to surrender that freedom which we received from our gallant ancestors, and which our innocent posterity have a right to receive from us. We cannot endure the infamy and guilt of resigning succeeding generations to that wretchedness which inevitably awaits them, if we basely entail hereditary bondage upon them. In our own native land, in defense of the freedom that is our birthright and which we ever enjoyed to the late violation of it, for the protection of our property acquired solely by the honest industry of our forefathers and ourselves against violence actually offered, we have taken up arms. The Declaration of the Causes and Necessity affirmed for America what Patrick Henry had said to Virginia. We most solemnly before God and the world declare that exerting the utmost energy of those powers which our beneficent creator has graciously bestowed upon us the arms which we have been compelled by our enemies to assume, we will, in defiance of every hazard, with unabating firmness and perseverance, employ for the preservation of our liberties, being with one mind resolved to die free men rather than to live like slaves. Although they made their position quite clear that they would defend their rights, the colonists were still hopeful for a reconciliation with the crown. They hoped that although they had a right to fight to protect liberty, 
and were committed to doing so if necessary, that the Olive Branch petition would avoid further bloodshed. Well before the petition or the declaration of causes and necessities arrived in England, the king had become further entrenched in his intransigent opposition to compromise. The king wrote Lord North on 26 July 1775, We must persist. I know I am doing my duty and therefore can never wish to retract. On the same day, Lord North wrote to the king, Lord North submits to his majesty that the war is now grown to such a height that it must be treated as a foreign war, and that every expediency which would be used in the latter case should be applied in the former. This, of course, would take the conflict to an entirely different magnitude. To put down a protest, a boycott, smugglers, rabble-rousers, and tax evaders was one thing. To conquer a foreign enemy was an entirely different one. The scope of military force and barbarism would be completely different. The Congress sent Richard Penn and Richard Lee to England to deliver the Olive Branch Petition. Now, Penn was an American expatriate living in London. He was the former lieutenant governor of Pennsylvania and was favorable to the Patriots' cause. Richard Lee was the London agent for Massachusetts. On August 21, 1775, they attempted to deliver the Olive Branch petition to the king through Lord Dartmouth, Secretary of the State for the American Colonies. But Lord Dartmouth couldn't be bothered. It was rejected out of hand, never received. Indeed, two days later, on August 23, 1775, the king declared the colonies in rebellion. He called for his loyal subjects to support the empire in putting down the rebellion and desist from communicating with them. The colonies received the news of the king's actions in September 1775. It only got worse. On October 26, 1775, George III went to the opening of Parliament and made it very clear that the colonies were to be crushed like any foreign enemy. In no uncertain terms, he declared war against the patriots in America. My lords and gentlemen, those who have long too successfully labored to inflame my people in America by gross misrepresentations and to infuse into their minds a system of opinions repugnant to the true constitution of the colonies and to their subordinate relation to Great Britain, now openly avow the revolt, hostility, and rebellion. They have raised troops and are collecting a naval force. They have seized the public revenue and assumed to themselves legislative, executive, and judicial powers, which they already exercise in their most arbitrary manner over the persons and properties of their fellow subjects. And although many of these unhappy people may still retain their loyalty, and may be too wise not to see the fatal consequences of this usurpation, and wish to resist it, yet the torrent of violence has been strong enough to compel their acquiescence till a sufficient force shall appear to support them. Putting aside the majestic language, pun intended, the king declared that America was in rebellion and that he would crush it. Okay, I I'm going to cut in here. You guys have been hogging the microphone, and we're going to talk about one of my favorite founding fathers who we celebrate in Patriot Week, so it's my turn. Counter, or perhaps compliment, these salvos from the king himself, the Americans had their own thunder, Thomas Paine.
really. Paine pretty much had that effect. For being such a pivotal figure in American history, many overlooked the fact that Paine was an Englishman. And I don't mean like all the colonists, I mean he lived in England until 1774. Through his unparalleled powerful pamphlets, Common Sense in the Crisis, he played a critical role in sparking and supporting the American Revolution. Born in Thetford, England on January 29, 1737, Paine's eclectic background before the American Revolution included, among other things, such illustrious careers as a corset maker, merchant seaman, excise officer, staymaker, school teacher, inventor. In other words, he was pretty much a complete failure. However, although he barely survived the transatlantic voyage, Paine truly found his calling after he immigrated to America with letters of recommendation from Benjamin Franklin. At the urging of patriot Dr. Benjamin Rush, who even supplied the title, Paine penned Common Sense at the beginning of 1776, which more than any other tract gave voice to the reasons why the time had come for America to declare independence from the British Empire. Common Sense was a masterstroke. It obliterated the arguments that the colonists should remain loyal to the king. In the course of the work, Paine wrote that in his view, in early man, there were no kings and therefore no wars. He drew upon scripture, and he claimed that the kings were not only destructive, but the product of evil. And I mean the evil. Quote, Government by kings was first introduced into the world by the heathens, from whom the children of Israel copied the custom. It was the most prosperous invention the devil ever set on foot for the promotion of idolatry. The heathens paid divine honors to their deceased kings, and the Christian would forth improved on the plan by doing the same to their living ones. How impious is the title of sacred majesty applied to a worm who in the midst of his splendor is crumbling into dust. Unquote. Returning to scripture and following the famous story of when the Israelites cried out for a king, he explained that contrary to the doctrine of divine right and similar beliefs, God was quite against the establishment of kings. Quote, as the exalting one man, so greatly above the rest, cannot be justified on the equal rights of nature, so neither can it be defended on the authority of Scripture. For the will of the Almighty, as declared by Gideon and the prophet Samuel, expressly disapproves of government by kings. Unquote. And this was not all. The idea of kingship was made even worse by the idea of hereditary kingship. Although in the modern age we are quite used to thinking of kingships being passed down through bloodlines, this was not always the case. And Paine condemned hereditary kingships quite eloquently. Quote, To the evil of monarch, we have added that of hereditary succession. And as the first is a degradation and lessening of ourselves, so the second, claimed as a matter of right, is an insult and an imposition on posterity. For all men being originally equals, no one by birth could have a right to set up his own facility in perpetual preference to all others forever. And though he himself might deserve some decent degree of honors of his contemporaries, yet his descendants might be far too unworthy to inherit them. One of the strongest natural proofs of the folly of hereditary rights in kings is that nature disapproves it. Otherwise, she would not so frequently turn it to ridicule by giving mankind an ass for a lion. Unquote. Paine then reviewed history to prove his point. The history of England, of course, was full of kingships and nobility. If kings were the way to go, so to speak, then history should bear out the happy consequences which flowed from it. Paine snickered that it was quite the opposite. Quote, England, since the conquest of William the Conqueror, 
hath known some few good monarchs, but groaned beneath a much larger number of bad ones. Yet no man and his sons can say that their claim under William the Conqueror is a very honorable one. A French bastard, landing with an armed banditti and establishing himself a king of England against the consent of the natives, is in plain terms a very paltry, rascally original. It certainly hath no divinity in it. However, it is needless to spend much time in exposing the folly of hereditary right. If there are any so weak as to believe it, let them promiscuously worship the ass and lion, and welcome. I neither copy their humility nor disturb their devotion." Unquote. Hereditary succession, noted pain, often results in minors, youngsters, sometimes even babies, becoming king. The best defense for hereditary kingship is that it stops civil strife. In other words, that there's no battle over who's going to be the king. But as Payne remarked, quote, The whole history of England disowns the fact. Thirty kings and two minors have reigned in that distracted kingdom since the conquest of William the Conqueror, in which time there have been, including the Revolution, no less than eight civil wars and nineteen rebellions. Wherefore, instead of making for peace, it makes against it and destroys the very foundation it seems to stand on. Unquote. He summed up his argument in three short sentences. Quote, in short, monarchy and success have laid not this or that kingdom only, but the world in blood and ashes. Tis a form of government which the word of God bears testimony against, and blood will tend to it. Of more worth is one honest man to society and in the sight of God than all the crowned ruffians that ever lived. Unquote. Payne's closing argument prevailed. The circumstances had changed. The founder's perspective had changed. The enemy was the king. Note another important word in this famous phrase of, quote, the history of the present king of Great Britain is a history of repeated injuries and usurpations, all having in direct object the establishment of an absolute tyranny over these states, unquote. The word colonies disappears. It is now states. With the dissolution of the ties to the king and the empire, the governments had become states. For the next section of this analysis, we will return to bombastic Brent Bassett. The floor is yours. Thanks, Judge. You've got to give it to Tom Paine. He knew how to rock the world. Of course, the judge would take Paine and the thunder and leave me King George III. Oh, well. The next sentence of the declaration is as follows, quote, To prove this, let facts be submitted to a candid world, unquote. A couple of important points here. First, the Founding Fathers did not rely upon opinion, supposition, rhetoric, or feelings. They were justifying the revolution on facts. It was not conjectures or assumptions. It was facts. Samuel Johnson's 1768 Dictionary defines facts as, quote, a thing done, an effect produced, two, reality, not supposition, three, action, deed, unquote. Noah Webster's 1828 dictionary is very similar. Quote, one, anything done or that comes to pass, an act, a deed, an effect produced or achieved, an event. Witnesses are introduced into court to prove a fact. Facts are stubborn things. To deny a fact knowingly is to lie. Two, reality, truth, as in fact. So we say indeed. 
Unquote. Notice that both of these sources list as the initial definition an event or thing that has come to pass, and that is exactly what the founders explain in the Declaration of Independence. They were going to list out all of the past events that proved that the king and parliament were attempting to tyrannize the colonies. This was extremely important. They were not just asserting it, they were going to prove it. You can tell that of the 56 signers of the Declaration of Independence, nearly half, that is 25, were lawyers. You can also see that Jefferson, the primary draftsman, and Adams, the dominating personality for declaring independence, were both lawyers. They were not simply going to make a statement and move on. They were going to prove it. Second, they were going to prove it not just to themselves, but the world. And they added the qualifier, a candid world. This was not about lies, sugarcoating, rose-colored glasses, deceit, misrepresentations, deflections, etc. This was about what really was. Samuel Johnson's 1768 definition of candid is, quote, 1. White. 2. Fair. Open. Ingenious. Unquote. But that hardly captures what the founders meant. Webster's 1828 dictionary, on the other hand, really captures the essence. Quote, one, white. Two, fair, open, frank, ingenious, free from undue bias, disposed to think and judge according to truth and justice, or without partiality or prejudice, applied to persons. Three, fair, just, impartial, applied to things as a candid view or construction. Unquote. The dictionary specifically states that the definition of white is rarely used. The second definition applies to persons, and it specifically states disposed to think and judge according to truth and justice. That captures the founders' intentions here. They wanted the world to know, according to truth and justice, what was happening in the colonies. For the first grievance, we will bring back Be Reasonable's Mike Gerard. Thank you, Bombastic Brent. And finally, we're on to the grievances. The first grievance is listed as follows. He has refused his assent to laws, the most wholesome and necessary for the public good. Now, what the heck does that mean? Well, let's think about today. If Congress passes a bill, it doesn't become law unless the president approves it. The same applied with the colonies. The legislature could pass laws but the king had to assent, that is approve, the law before it became effective. Now, it's true that the colonial governments had governors, but in the end, any laws passed by the colonial legislatures had to be approved by both the local governor, who was almost always appointed by the king, and the king himself. To be even more precise, legislation that passed the colonial legislatures could be vetoed by the respective governor, and even if the governor approved the bill, the king could veto it, usually for a period of three and a half years after it was passed. This became a major issue between the colonies and the king. In his Summary View of the Rights of British America, written in 1774, Thomas Jefferson had already condemned the king's refusal to approve colonial legislation. You might find this passage interesting and surprising. That we next proceed to consider the conduct of this majesty as holding the executive powers of the laws of these states and mark out his deviations from the line of duty. 
by the Constitution of Great Britain, as well as the several American states, His Majesty possesses the power of refusing to pass into a law any bill which has already passed the other two branches of legislature. His Majesty, however, and his ancestors, conscious of the impropriety of opposing their singular opinion to the united wisdom of the two houses of Parliament, while their proceedings were unbiased by interested principles, for several ages past have modestly declined the exercise of it slower in that part of this empire called Great Britain. But by change of circumstances, other principles than those of justice simply have obtained an influence on their determinations. The addition of new states to the British Empire has produced an addition of new and sometimes opposite interest. It is now, therefore, the great office of His Majesty to resume the exercise of his negative power and to prevent the passage of laws by any legislature of the empire which might bear injuriously on the rights and interests of another. Yet this will not excuse the wanton exercise of this power which we have seen His Majesty practice on the laws of the American legislatures. For the most trifling reasons, and sometimes for no conceivable reason at all, His Majesty has rejected laws of the most salutary tendency. The abolition of domestic slavery is the great object of desire in these colonies, where it was unhappily introduced in their infant state. But previous to the enfranchisement of the slaves we have, it is necessary to exclude all further importations from Africa. Yet our repeated attempts to effect this by prohibitions and by imposed duties which might amount to prohibitions have been hitherto defeated by His Majesty's negative thus preferring the immediate advances of a few African corsairs to the lasting interests of the American states and to the rights of human nature, deeply wounded by this infamous practice. Nay, the single interposition of an interested individual against a law was scarcely ever known to fail of success, though in the opposite scale were placed the interests of the whole country." that it's so shameful an abuse of power trusted with his majesty for other purposes, or if not reformed, would call for legal restrictions. Now I know that was a long quote, but considering Jefferson's reputation on slavery, it's important to hear it in full. The Declaration of Independence's first condemnation of the king, yeah, you heard that right, was based on the king's failure to refuse to approve colonial laws banning the slave trade. The North American colonies, as well as other British colonies in the New World, like Jamaica, tried to impose duties and other restrictions on the importation of slaves, and those attempts were stopped, in essence vetoed, by the king and his administrators. In particular, South Carolina in 1760, New Jersey in 1763, and Virginia in 1772 all passed acts taxing the slave trade, but the king refused to assent. In addition, the king refused to give his approval to laws addressing naturalizing aliens, commercial matters, the issuance of letters of credit, the emission of colonial paper currency, and regarding colonial representatives to parliament. Moreover, the phrase, wholesome and necessary, came from a bill passed by the Massachusetts legislature in the wake of the Stamp Act crisis. Now, when the Stamp Act was passed, there was a huge resistance in the colonies, some of it resulting in property destruction. And eventually, the empire backed off. 
But when they did so, Secretary Conway of the Empire explained that the colonies needed to pay for damages to public property. Massachusetts passed a law providing for such indemnification and in the same law provided for the pardon to anyone involved in such property destruction because they found it would be wholesome and necessary for the public good to do so. The assent, however, was refused. In addition, acts attempting to stop the immigration of convicts to the colonies were voided by the king. Historian Sidney George Fisher summarized the cumulative effect of the king's refusal to assent to colonial legislative enactments. All of these disallowances had been very much resented by the Patriot Party. Very likely the Patriot Party in each colony had its own particular grievances on the subject of disallowance or veto of laws. And in general, the Patriot Party in America understood this complaint about disallowance to refer to interference from England. Control at a distance of 3,000 miles by an outside power which prevented the colonists from passing paper money acts, getting divorces, taxing slave or convict importation, and doing other things on which their hearts were set. And this was not a rarity. All the colonies had laws disallowed. In fact, one study revealed that in 83 years, Massachusetts had 59 laws disallowed, which was the smallest number of all of the colonies. Mike Gerard, I just have to interrupt with one more elaboration of how petty and really deeply personal the King's repression could be, as reported by historian Herbert Friedenwald. Quote, The royal governors were often specifically instructed to withhold assent from certain kinds of legislation. Every man had felt the strong arm of the home government interfering not only in the public, but in his private affairs as well. To such an extent had this been carried that after 1773, not even a divorce could be granted in any of the colonies, for the penalty was instant dismissal to the governor, who gave countenance to such a law. That same year witnessed at least 20 important colonial laws rejected by the king upon various pretexts. Unquote. Imagine that, you couldn't even get a divorce. How do you think the founding generation felt about that, Mike Gerard? As we've discussed, the idea of a just and free social compact requires that the people consent to their laws. But what this first grievance of the Declaration of Independence points out is that the will of the people, even when they consented, could be stopped single-handedly by the king or his ministers. This subversion of the social compact meant that the people were not in charge. The king was. Coupled with Thomas Paine's devastating critique of the rule of the king, the foundation for a revolution was laid. And for the second grievance, we return to bombastic Brent Bassett. The second grievance is very similar to the first. Let's listen to it carefully. Quote, he has forbidden his governors to pass laws of immediate and pressing importance unless suspended in their operation till his assent should be obtained, and when so suspended, he has utterly neglected to attend to them. Unquote. What this is saying is that instead of the king directly vetoing a bill from becoming law, he is using a kind of subterfuge by telling the governors not to sign it unless the king approves. Sometimes this resulted in lengthy delays in considering the bills, and sometimes they were never considered at all. 
In his summary view of the rights of British America, Jefferson elaborated. With equal inattention to the necessities of his people here, has his majesty permitted our laws to lie neglected in England for years, neither confirming them by his assent nor annulling them by his negative, so that such of them as have no suspending clause we hold on the most precarious of all tenures his majesty's will, and such of them as suspend themselves till his majesty's assent be obtained, we have feared might be called into existence at some future and distant period, when time and change of circumstances shall have rendered them destructive to his people here. And to render this grievance still more oppressive, his majesty, by his instructions, has laid his governors under such restrictions that they can pass no law of any moment unless it have such suspending clause, so that, however immediate may be the call for legislative interposition, the law cannot be executed till it has twice crossed the Atlantic, by which time the evil may have spent its whole force." This explanation really explains the evils of the king's subterfuge. Laws that needed to be passed just languished in a kind of legal limbo, neither approved or disapproved, just sitting there, rotting, becoming stale. In some instances, the circumstances that required the passage of the law had come and gone, and in fact, sometimes circumstances had changed so dramatically that it would be best not to even pass the law anymore. Again, the king ordered the governor of New Hampshire to veto all acts restricting the importation of slaves. Likewise, the king ordered the governor of Massachusetts to veto two bills passed by the Massachusetts legislature to tax the slave trade. Another example happened in 1764. The New York Assembly wanted to create an alliance with the Six Nations. They were powerful Native American tribes and approved a bill to do just that. New York Governor Colden agreed with the bill, but the king instructed him and all colonial governors to halt any such attempts until the king decided it was appropriate. The colonists waited and waited and waited and waited and waited. Uh, Brent, we get it. The colonists waited for a long time. Nothing ever happened. Hence the grievance that the king, quote, utterly neglected to attend them, unquote. Okay, back to you, Bombastic Brent Bassett. This king's power to stop governors from approving laws roamed widely. For example, in 1759, the New York Assembly passed a bill allowing justices of the peace to try minor cases, and the governor was ordered not to assent. Governors were ordered not to permit a lottery a popular and key means of raising desperately needed revenue that the higher class in England believed was immoral. The colonists believed that they were more than capable of regulating their own moral conduct, and the king's directive struck at the heart of self-government. Likewise, in 1770, the Massachusetts Assembly passed a bill taxing British government officials in the colonies. The king again ordered the governor not to approve the law. The colonists believed that the governor had a duty under the Massachusetts Charter to approve the law, but it was never approved. Instead, it was utterly neglected. Thanks, Brent. These first two grievances were not trivial matters. They were at the core of freedom, self-government, and unalienable rights. The social compact had been violated in grave ways by the king. There was no going back. 
My fellow patriots, we have begun our journey through the specific grievances the founders laid out in the Declaration of Independence. They were grounding the Declaration not just in philosophy, but tyrannical actions of the king and empire. In our next regular episode, we will continue to explore these grievances. Some key takeaways from this episode. The Declaration of Independence was not just a declaration of principles and lofty sentiments, but it provided a concrete set of grievances by which the British Empire had violated the first principles of free and just government. The founders announced that list of grievances as facts, not opinions, and announced that list to the entire world to judge. The Declaration of Independence laid at the feet of the king himself that list of grievances. They decided the time had come to break from a hereditary king and fully embrace the idea of a social compact embodied in a republic. The first and second grievances involved the king's refusal to approve laws passed by the colonial legislatures, either by directly refusing to approve them or instructing his governors to disapprove them as well as neglecting the underlying problems that led to the laws he refused to embrace. Those grievances struck at the heart of the social compact, self-governance, unalienable rights, and the other first principles of a free and just government. Fellow patriots, thank you for listening. And please join us next time when we continue our exploration of the grievances of the Declaration of Independence, in particular the following, quote, He has refused to pass other laws for the accommodation of large districts of people, unless those people would relinquish the right of representation in the legislature, a right inestimable to them and formidable to tyrants only. He has called together legislative bodies at places unusual, uncomfortable, and distant from the depository of their public records for the sole purpose of fatiguing them into compliance with his measures. He has dissolved representative houses repeatedly for opposing with manly firmness his invasions of the rights of the people. He has refused for a long time, after such disillusions, to cause others to be elected, whereby the legislative powers, incapable of annihilation, have returned to the people at large for their exercise, the state remaining in the meantime exposed to all the dangers of invasion from without and convulsions within, Until then, God bless you and God bless America. Thank you, Patriots, for listening to Patriot Lessons. I'm David Drewicki, and we hope you enjoyed this episode. Please subscribe to our podcast and rate us. That is, if you're going to give those five golden stars. We can be found on Apple Podcasts, Google, Anchor, and many other platforms. You can also learn more by visiting PatriotWeek.org. Patriot Week is celebrated every year from September 11, the anniversary of the terrorist attacks, through September 17 the anniversary of the signing of the Constitution. It has been recognized by the U.S. Senate and many states. Patriot Week was started by then 10-year-old Leo Warren when she pounded on the table and demanded a new celebration of America. You can follow us on Facebook on our Patriot Week Foundation page and on Instagram at Patriot Week 1776. If you are interested in becoming involved in this grassroots effort or have any questions or comments, please send us a message on the social media platforms I mentioned or connect with Judge Warren directly at mwarren at patriotweek.org. Also consider Judge Warren's book, America's Survival Guide, How to Stop America's Impending Suicide by Reclaiming Our First Principles in History by visiting americassurvivalguide.com, Amazon, 
or any other online retailer. Until next time, God bless you and God bless America.